0: Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right.
1: I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted.
0: Joshua Hawley is the former Attorney General of Missouri and a current United States Senator for Missouri. He graduated from Stanford University and then later attended Yale Law School. For this episode, we read... America's Epicurean Liberalism, which is a post-liberal view written by Joshua Hawley on the current liberalist culture in America, and then his views on what needs to change to go back to more traditional American ideals.
1: Josh Hawley's political career has had its ups and downs. He tied himself to Trump, probably closest on economic ties. Hawley is anti-free trade and anti-immigration. Uh, for instance, I just went to his Senate page. On here are Hawley says Biden's open border policies have created a moral crisis. Hawley blasts Biden's alarming complacency and reversal of TikTok bans So. uh you know, sort of anti-China economic rivalry thing. And then Hawley slam Senate China bill for cutting tariffs, failing to put American workers first. So again, both anti-China and also anti-free trade. Uh, and then on the highlights side, it says a trust-busting agenda for the 21st century, which when I hear trust-busting, the person I think of is Teddy Roosevelt, who coincidentally, Josh Hawley admires and has written a biography about. His sort of politics and worldview is something called national conservatism. So national conservatism especially looks at disaffected parts of America, such as the Rust Belt and rural areas that feel like society is changing too rapidly and they're being left behind, especially economically when it comes to the outsourcing of manufacturing. These may be valid concerns. National conservatism then takes their disaffection and offers its own vision. National conservatism is now being used to intellectualize the Trump phenomenon, which itself lacked a coherent ideology. And Hawley and and Hammer and other thinkers are trying to capture those Trump voters. And because a lot of Trump voters were just loyal to Trump, who is not an ideology, he's just a person. So they're trying to put their own ideology for those voters.
0: I read him as more of a post-liberalist, and there's different strains of it, but on the right, it's the belief that virtue supersedes rights and liberty. Liberalism itself has failed, so post-liberalism kind of takes a religious morality skew and tries, like the ultimate goal is to create a world where freedom and the common good can work together in harmony, but that's kind of achieved through traditional societal values. The other thing I don't think we said about him yet that's a big part of his platform, he's incredibly anti-big tech. That's one of the big things he's against. He's spoken out a lot against companies like Facebook, and he's been demanding a lot of accountability
1: yeah, the idea that some businesses are too big and have too much power and have almost monopoly power and need to be broken up by the government and regulated. It's very Rooseveltian and, and turn of the century progressive. To jump into the essay itself, he starts off with an opening paragraph about the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus who taught that individual happiness was the aim of living and that pleasure was the sum of happiness. He would have loved 21st century America. Hawley describes our culture as distinctly Epicurean, the self-fulfillment and the quest for individual self-discovery. And sometimes when people talk about Epicurus, they kind of switch them out for the Cyrenaics who looked for sense pleasure and were really hedonists. Epicureans, yeah, they they liked pleasure, but it's it's more of a detached pleasure that's found in contemplating life and, and being separate from the character of the world than it is about orgies and feasts. That's a pretty common misconception a lot of people have.
0: I don't completely disagree with his characterization of our culture as Epicurean. I think there's more focus today than ever before on leisure activities, especially during quarantine. All of this stuff blew up. Like everyone was baking bread. Everyone was painting pictures. So I, I think there's some truth in that. I don't know. I agree that self-fulfillment are great national ambition. I'm not sure we have a national ambition right now.
1: I think it kind of relates to another sort of misunderstood philosophical topic, the, Nietzsche, God is Dead idea, where he was talking about how basically everyone's life revolves around religious observance. And so when society secularizes, and people no longer have those values, if they don't replace it with anything, then you're just going to have nihilism where once if you remove a value or a purpose, and you don't either get a new one or create your own, then you're just sort of lost in a haze that may be what he's getting at and maybe where americans are where we just try to fill our time with anything yeah anything fun baking bread
2: doing puzzles
1: and and it's individual happiness as defined by each person for himself i mean it's just what do i feel like doing what's going to make me happy today and there's not in society sort of a yeah there's definitely not the like if, if you went to you know britain and you know the 40s what's your goal today they'd just be like oh you know we're fighting like we're going to win world war ii that's that's The national goal, most of us are focused on that. And that's just not something we have where we're all unified around some goal or purpose.
0: I think the last time we had one may have been 9 11 or even Hurricane Katrina. Like it takes disaster to bring about national unity, especially in a country as large as this.
2: Yeah. And like what he's talking about here, it definitely has the vibe of like it's everyone for themselves in regard to self-fulfillment and anything that you could possibly want out of life, it's up to you. And you're not responsible for anybody else's happiness either.
1: Yeah. And he says Epicurean liberalism because he kind of ties the two together. So he takes the Epicurean part is this individual self-fulfillment, making choices about yourself and viewing everything through the lens of yourself. And then he coins it with liberalism, which is the idea of rights. And he says perhaps the best working definition of this worldview was offered by the Supreme Court 18 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Here's the quote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. And it's unknown who wrote that line, although I think it's pretty obvious that it's Kennedy because he's a terrible writer. This article was also written before Obergefell, the gay marriage decision where that Kennedy did write the opinion that least put his name on it. And he wrote something similar. He said, the constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity, which sounds very similar to this. And also leads to one of my favorite Scalia lines where he says in the dissent, if even as the price to be paid for a fifth vote, I ever joined an opinion for the court that began The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. I would hide my head in a bag. The Supreme Court of the United States has descended from the disciplined legal reasoning of John Marshall and Joseph Story to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie.
0: Tell him, Scalia. He chooses this court case to illustrate the idea that liberty is being defined as personal choice. If you have the option to choose, you therefore have liberty. If there is something restricting any part of your choosing what is going to be meaningful or beneficial to your life, that's viewed as a lack of liberty. He says that this is embraced on both the right and the left just in slightly different ways. It's really, they have different approaches to achieving this liberty, but most people right now can come to a consensus that liberty and personal choice are synonymous.
1: And then he references Frank Meyer, the father of fusionism, who he was a writer associated with National Review Magazine, who tried to create a fusion between libertarianism and conservatism. I was walking through the UNO library a couple of years ago when I saw this book on the shelf and it was called Freedom and Virtue, The Conservative Libertarian Debate. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. So I picked it up and it was actually a book full of essays just about Frank Meyer and fusionism. The best one, I think, was written by a guy named Murray Rothbard, who said that at the heart of the dispute between the traditionalists and the libertarians is the question of freedom and virtue. Should virtuous action, however we define it, be compelled, or should it be left up to the free and voluntary choice of the individual? Here, only two answers are possible. Any fusionist attempt to find a third way is since it's that the two would simply be impossible. Frank Meyer was on this crucial issue squarely in the libertarian camp. In my view, his most important contribution to conservatism was his emphasis that to be virtuous in any meaningful sense, a man's action must be free. It is not simply that freedom and virtue are both important and that one hopes freedom of choice will lead to virtuous actions. The point is more forceful. No action can be virtuous unless it is freely chosen. That is something that Hawley would disagree with. And Frank Meyer, who he says is a Epicurean liberal, would agree with. It differs from Aristotle, who thought that virtue had to be trained. And that the training needed to be start when you were a child. So Aristotle saw virtuous action kind of like a muscle and needed to be strengthened. But when you were young, you couldn't do it by yourself. You needed your parents to make you to do virtuous actions. And then over time, being forced to do it would lead to them wanting to do it.
2: The meaning behind why you're doing things and choices you make matters, not just the fact that you're doing it.
0: According to Hawley, the goal of Epicurean liberalism is that it seeks to use the state to protect the will of the individual. And in doing so, that means it needs to remove any barriers between the individual and the state. So in his view, through Epicurean liberalism, people's choice will become protected by the state and people need to become less distanced from the means of government for this to happen.
1: There's this idea that people's choices can be restricted by the state. I mean, in totalitarianism, so you can have the government saying, you know, you can or can't do this, but people can also have their choices restricted by civil society. You know, let's say it's a very conservative society and single mothers are shunned. They're not hired by businesses. In his view, Epicurean liberals would say, this is also bad. This is also a restriction on freedom. It's, act- it's actually more free for the government to be active here and restrict businesses and say, you can't refuse to hire someone just because she's a single mother, for example. That's where he's getting at when he's talking about it seeks to use the state to protect or advance the will of the individual, often leaving no room for the mediated institutions of family churches, civic associations, and fraternal groups. I don't think that's necessarily the classic hallmark of liberalism. It's a classic hallmark of collectivism. For instance, the fascists did this. They wanted to make sure that there were no institutions outside of the states, like the Boy Scouts were replaced with the Hitler Youth because the Boy Scouts weren't under the direction of the state, but Hitler Youth is, is a state organization. And the communists did it in Eastern Europe. There's a book called uh, The Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe that talks about when the, when the Soviets invaded uh, at the end of World War II, churches, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and um, their equivalent of like the Lions Club and, you know, those kinds of organizations are all outlawed and replaced with communist organizations that are part and parcel of the state. And that's sort of what he's getting at in the paragraph where he talks about how Epicurean liberalism is an intensely individualistic worldview. It has precious little to say about the nation, the public, or society, unless those things are simply collapsed into the state. It can't form the idea of a public good or national purpose. Instead, it shrinks the common good down to individual material equality and focuses on giving individuals the financial and other resources to choose their own life ends.
0: The way he's stating it, it almost feels like he's describing like one of those all-inclusive resorts. If you go on vacation on a cruise, or if you go to like a private beach somewhere where they have like walls from the rest of the country or whatever, everything's pretty much laid out for you. There are activities at certain times, there's food set aside. And if you pay for everything up front, you don't even have to worry about that aspect. You can just walk around and do what you want. That's what I thought of when he described this, kind of the idea that there's a governing body taking care of the minutia, and then citizens are freed up to achieve whatever personal purpose they have.
1: To these Epicurean liberals, freedom means you're free from any obligations, your needs are taken care of, and then you can pursue what makes you happy. Universal basic income things, they can say like, people are free from, you know, wage slavery, and they can write the next great American novel or they can become an artist and create art. And it's all about create. It's always about creating art for some reason. Um, that's probably the only thing that people should be doing.
0: It's almost like the need to automate all processes so that you have unencumbered voice, which, I mean, I feel like sounds great until you have it. And then at I mean, least for me, I feel like I'd be a giant mess, not knowing what to do. To be honest with you. I think I'd freeze and panic a little.
2: I feel like lots of people felt that way, like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, if they, if they couldn't work from home or go to work, you know, they had weeks just to fill, you could do whatever you wanted in the time by yourself or whatever, with whoever you were quarantined with. And it lost its appeal real fast.
1: So for instance, like with masks, Epicurean liberals who were anti-maskers would have said... It's my choice to live how my life how I want, so I shouldn't have to wear a mask anywhere I go. Even businesses that want to require people to wear masks, the government shouldn't let them do that. The government should make them let me in without a mask. And then pro-mask, Epicurean liberalism liberals would be, it, it's impinging on my freedom if there's a place that's dangerous for me to go, so therefore the government should require everyone to wear masks, the government should require everyone to get vaccinated. It's all about my ability to do whatever I want, anything that constrains that is inherently wrong. Well,
0: I think that's a great illustration of how this philosophy can easily apply on either side of the aisle. You can take it and mold it to whatever beliefs you hold. And whatever you believe is the thing you either want more or less restricted in the name of freedom. So it's a pretty like moldable philosophy.
1: And it's also a philosophy that leads to massive political battles if now government is dictating what freedom is and is taking one person's view or another person's view about what freedom is and then suddenly everything about life needs to be a political battleground by necessity so before maybe you could have some stores that required masks some stores that didn't require masks you could go to the ones that you wanted oh that store's being irresponsible i'm not going there i'm gonna go to this one where it's being responsible. or oh, that store is being anti-free. I'm going to go to the store. That doesn't mean you want mask. Instead. Now it's, there's going to be one size fits all rules because the government has to take one view or the other.
2: I mean, yeah. What, what happens when what two people want gets in the way of each other's desires? If you have person a want something that prohibits person B from getting what they want, then how do you come to an agreement?
1: I'm a very conservative Christian, so I don't want businesses to be supporting LGBT causes of any kind because then it infringes on my freedom and it makes me feel unwelcome. I'm an LGBT person, so therefore every business needs to be open and welcoming of me. And any business that's run by a conservative Christian is infringing on my freedom. And so then you have the culture war where the government needs to pick one side or the other. Now that he's laid out his idea of what this ideology is, he says, How can it be that both people on both sides of the aisle have the same basic philosophy of this choice-centered individualism? Where did it come from? And his thesis is it was the outcome of the clash in 19, the night presidential election of 1912 between Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. You see his ideology comes out in this description of of the progressive era. It says, American manufacturing erupted, driving millions of laborers from farms to cities. And that driving is the ruby uses. But if there's an industry that has a big boom and people go to work in it, they're not driven there, they're drawn there. The reason people left farms and went to manufacturing is because they wanted to. Farm work was incredibly long and dangerous, and American manufacturing gave them Uh, a chance for better prosperity and, and especially in the case of a lot of women, uh, a lot more individual freedom. And then he also says the uh, immigration boom placed acute downward pressure on wages and strained cities' social infrastructures. This is a big thing for an immigration restrictionist is it's bad for American laborers. It's the reason why Bernie Sanders opposes um, open immigration. It's the reason why Josh Hawley does is this idea that if you have more supply in the wage market, prices go down because supply goes up. It ignores the fact that demand also goes up there was a Cuban boat lift in the 60s or 70s where basically Cuba allowed all Cuban refugees to go to Florida for like a week and like 50,000 people showed up overnight and uh, wages didn't go down. They actually went up. And he talks about how inequality widened because the immigrants were coming to America. And it's true that American inequality widened, but global inequality decreased because people from massively poor countries are coming to a relatively wealthy country. So globally, inequality went down, but in America, naturally, it would have gone up temporarily. Holly, as he mentioned earlier with his sort of talk about manufacturing, I think he has sort of the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer ideal for America.
0: I've never seen the word yeoman used that many times in a row. But I also felt that he, he viewed a lot of this change as kind of a misfortune for the country. Just like the way he wrote about it. I got the sense he viewed most of these shifts as negatives for the ideals Mm -hmm. of the country, which would make sense if it's what led to Epicurean liberalism. A lot of these, though, I mean, whether it's positive or negative, it's something that happened. So I mean, regardless of your personal views on the history of the country, I mean, industrialization was kind of evident following the rest of the world. And these shifts happened. So I guess he could be upset about the ideological consequences of it, but the changes themselves, I think, were kind of bound to happen. I mean, I don't think you could undo industrialization.
2: So it especially looking back, it almost seems inevitable. Like, yeah, of course, if all this stuff is possible, people were going to be able to figure out, figure it out and make
0: it happen. The yeoman fairy tale became increasingly out of reach, but I should
2: all
0: be working on farms still. Not that
2: I'm glad we still have farmers, but we don't all need to have our own farm.
0: Well, and I love farms. Like they have goats and stuff. Like that's great. But I think if everyone had one, we would sacrifice a lot of the modern convenience that everybody likes. So I guess maybe the shift was inevitable, but it's not feasible for everyone to go back to probably industrialized America.
1: All the problems culminated, in his view, the, the progressive movement, of which two strands came to stand out above the rest, Roosevelt and w- Wilson's, who had similar but different strands of progressivism.
0: When he talks about Roosevelt, he says that Roosevelt's goal was to use the government to restore the old ideals. He wanted to see a return to independence and self-mastery, and kind of a hearkening back to the pre-industrialization idealistic view of America. Roosevelt also viewed the government as kind of a go-between for the citizen. He thought it was the government's job to intervene on the behalf of the citizen when corporations were getting out of hand. And other things he wanted to benefit people and allow for the return to these older ideals were shortened workdays, minimum wage, rules about safety, disability, and then cash support for farmers. And in Roosevelt's view, all of these things provided via the government would serve to improve American standard of living and also encourage a return to earlier values.
1: In Holly's view, Roosevelt wanted to transmute personal independence into collective independence and giant mm-hmm. corporations are the new normal. We need to learn to live with them, but the government should intervene so that they don't completely control our lives. And, and Roosevelt also saw virtue, um, sort of the yeoman ideal as something that the government should be concerned with. And the government should try to cultivate certain characteristics and in citizens including virtue.
0: He touched on incentivizing two parent households, which today is still actually tied into virtue in a lot of cases, but just little things the government could do to encourage people to behave in a certain way. And having if you got than, a tax break or a benefit for being a two parent family, I mean, that probably worked for a lot of people.
2: And having more than what, three children, which is just crazy. Like my intern at work um, was born in China during the one child only policy and her mom moved to America because she wanted more kids. In
1: 1912, Roosevelt runs for president against Woodrow Wilson. And can I put my tinfoil hat on for a second? Please do. In 1912, a powerful minor party broke away from the Republicans and adopted the name the Progressive Party. Roosevelt was drafted out of retirement to run for the progressive party or against the the Republicans and the Democrats. As everyone knows, a splinter party, a party that splits the votes, the progressive party would split Republican votes. So the progressive party would pretty much necessarily hand the victory to the Democratic candidate. Both Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson had very heavy ties to the Morgans, J.P. Morgan Trust, whereas Taft, who was the Republican candidate, was, had heavy ties to the Rockefellers. So the theory is that the Morgans deliberately sabotaged Taft's campaign by having Roosevelt come out of retirement. The Progressive mm-hmm. Party was heavily pietist and intellectual. A lot of WASPs ever uh, found a New York Times article that called it a convention of fanatics, It was the first convention to permit women delegates. So I think it's probably an appropriate adjective. Equality, those crazy women. But Wilson's idea of liberty uh, differed from Roosevelt's.
0: He viewed um, Roosevelt's view as corporate liberty. And he felt that that could not exist unless liberty belonged exclusively to the individual. It's a similar ideal that can appeal to multiple sides because he also ran on a platform of liberty. They both did. But his, he envisioned fewer regulations. I don't know if it's a Hawley quote or a Wilson quote specifically. I think it's Wilson, but it says in here, if the government looks after everything, who looks after the government? So it seems to me like his platform was really just designed to be reactionary to Roosevelt. He's only described in here in oppositional terms to Roosevelt, which I guess also makes sense because Holly wrote a book on Roosevelt and really, really Mm -hmm. likes him.
1: And this is something that I wonder how accurate it is. Because whenever you talk about politicians, there's always the gap between rhetoric and reality. And it's how much of this was just Wilson trying to look different from Roosevelt. I mean, his big thing, Wilson's big thing at the Treaty of Versailles was national self-determination, except for the Germans who didn't get it, thereby causing World War II. So he he saw definitely people as composed of groups at that time, uh, ethnic and, and national groups. I pulled up the party platforms for the Progressive Party and the Democratic Party in 1912 to see how similar and how different they were. There's not a whole lot of overlap. So for instance, they both advocate for a single presidential term. They both talk about an eight hour work day. They both talk about cartelizing industry so that um, corporations don't have too much power. There's this funny line in here where the progressives say, they need to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics. And then they advocate for the establishment of a strong federal administrative commission of high standing, which will maintain permanent active supervision over industrial corporations. Well, if you're wanting to dissolve the alliance of government and business, I don't know if creating a permanent government department to work alongside business is going to do that.
2: I would not expect so.
1: But there's really not a whole lot in here, in the party platforms at least, that corresponds to the things that Holly talks about.
0: I view Roosevelt as a really adept marketer. So he markets things like the square deal, the three C's. He was a rough writer. It's not directly related to the ideologies. He was exceptional at marketing himself and what he was selling to the American people.
1: Roosevelt was very good at marketing two things. Himself, he created this image, the tough guy, macho man. He's also very good at selling uh, imperialistic war. It's one of the reasons I don't like him. So Hawley basically posits that Roosevelt's new nationalism and Wilson's new freedom Mm -hmm. were synthesized into a new liberalism, a new Epicurean liberalism that became entrenched in America and is still today.
0: And he says the liberalism is best embodied by a different Roosevelt, FDR, is where Hawley reveals that you can really see the new Epicurean liberalism come into play because FDR told, there's like a speech where he says Americans possess two sets of rights. Uh, The first is the rights to personal competency, which are similar to what Wilson described as rights of self-development. And then the second is rights related to acquiring and possessing property. The second set of rights in, in FDR's mind are created to serve the first. You have to make acquiring and possessing property fulfill personal competency. Sounds a lot like Epicurean liberalism, as defined by Holly.
1: That idea of two sets of rights is now enshrined in United States constitutional law. There's a very famous case, it's called Footnote 4, and it's in a case called Caroline Products. And where basically the court says there are two types of rights, personal rights and property rights, and we protect personal rights more strongly than property rights. The footnote is there may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the constitution, such as those of the first 10 amendments. And this was intended to take a blow at something called the Lochner era courts, which was uh, an era of, Supreme Court jurisprudence when property rights were very heavily protected by the court. And th- this is a, a very pretty mainstream view of rights. Now you'll hear things like, well, economic rights are second tier rights to people today. You'll hear people say dumb things like human rights over property rights, um, as if property rights aren't held by individuals.
2: Could be a form of human rights. A lot of it is a bunch of you know, a bunch of hot words and how you phrase things and twist things around, which ties back into this idea of Epicurean liberalism that can be twisted to support different beliefs.
0: Well, he then takes it into Isaiah Berlin's work to kind of support the further cementing of Epicurean liberalism into American society. And really what he discusses, it's Epicurean liberalism and moral pluralism kind of go together. Moral pluralism is the idea that there can be many different correct choices correct morals that could still be at odds with each other and Berlin in two concepts of liberty defines two different types of liberty that I think fit in really well with what he's writing about he talks about positive and negative liberty positive being the freedom to do something which in epicurean liberalism is the freedom to create your own choices and then negative liberty which is the freedom from things And a common analogy used to explain these two concepts are if you take the time in American history when slavery was repealed, former slaves gained negative liberty, as in they gained the right to not be somebody's property anymore, but they didn't really gain any positive rights. They had the freedom to not be one thing, but they didn't have the freedom to be another. I think positive and negative liberty fit in really well. With Epicurean liberalism, because that is advocating for both all things at all times. You need the freedom to do everything by being free from everything holding you back.
1: And you see that dichotomy between negative and positive rights. If you ever see, like, you know, labor regulation, people that are for negative rights will say things like, you know, the government shouldn't be interfering in a business's right to run it. And people on the positive rights section will say, like, yeah, you believe in rights, the right to starve because without access to a job and food will die. So rights don't mean anything if you can't have basic needs guaranteed. They
0: kind of cancel each other out though, because if you use positive rights to create like restrictions around things or if I mean, or if you take away certain rights, you're kind of counteracting what you're doing. Like if you make regulations around something, you inadvertently take away somebody's right to do
1: one thing. If you say a Black uh, American has the right to eat at whatever restaurant they want, then what you're saying is that restaurant owners don't have the right to deny service to who they want. You shouldn't have conflicting rights like that. And the way I look at it is rights imply duties. So it's easier to analyze things by, by looking at duties. So for instance, I have the right to life means you have the duty not to murder me that makes sense. On the other hand, if I have a right to food, that means other people have a duty to provide me food. And so when you're looking at analyzing positive and negative rights, it's easier, I think for analysis purposes, to flip it around and see what the corresponding duty is, and then see if that's something that you want to impose on people.
0: I pulled in FDR's Four Freedoms, actually, because I thought this went along with it too. Like if he's saying FDR was the first embodiment of Epicurean liberalism in His 1941 State of the Union, he identifies the four freedoms as freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want as basics that should be. And he was saying this in terms of like, this should be guaranteed to all persons all over the world, not just Americans. And it was used kind of as a justification for why the United States should enter World World War II.
1: So according to Holly, by the middle of the 20th century, that view of liberalism probably may be best summed up in those four freedoms it is firmly established as the reigning creed of the American regime. But according to Holly, it's not the only or even the best way to think about freedom.
0: The next section is really where he starts unpacking an alternative view to think about freedom. And the alternative he presents is the idea of self-determination. <music>
1: He says, what's the benefit of casting liberty as self-development? And he says, well, it teaches us to be skeptical of identifying the state with the people. It makes us understand that there's no corporate liberty without individual free liberty, because either the individual is free or he's not. To speak of his finding freedom by submitting to the state or to society or to some other corporate thing is confused and dangerous thinking. This makes me think of Rousseau's freedom as submitting to the general will idea. But he says still... The ethic of self-development leads to a conception of liberty that is radically solipsistic, even antisocial, and it suggests that freedom is best pursued alone. But this does not bear resemblance to how we actually live, because every person is born into a particular social setting, either a family, a community, a nation. And so liberty, it has to take that into account, or it's not helpful for life as we know it. I see the idea that freedom is best pursued alone in friends' givings, the difference between a Friendsgiving and a family Thanksgiving is in a Friendsgiving, you chose everyone that's at the table. Whereas in a family Thanksgiving, you didn't choose any of them, you know, except for your spouse. And so it's this idea that do you exist with the ties that you're born into, or do you try to cast everything aside and make every social tie your own from scratch?
0: I mean, I guess it's, either pursuing freedom on your own or pursuing freedom with chosen or imposed constraints. If you intend to be part of a social setting, a family or your nation, I mean, it's like the ultimate group project. You have to find a way to work together and get along. And that could mean giving up some of your personal goals or your personal aspirations or even what you want to cook for dinner because you're cooperating with other people. Which kind of goes back to the idea of like a national purpose or even a purpose just larger than yourself, even if it's only as big as the people you live with.
1: He talks about how liberty as self-development applies that every individual pursuit is as valuable as another. But he says that we have an intuition that some pursuits really are more important than others. So he identifies those as worship, association, participation in government, labor, family life, teaching and learning. Those are the things that he calls out so maybe with the the friends give an example that there is something to if you can make it work with your family that will give you greater satisfaction and then just being able to get along with your friends because I mean who can't get along with their friends
0: you can't you make new friends and you stop being friends with them well those are even pursuits that we have deeply ingrained into our culture is meaningful Like if you're sharing, like if someone asks you, well, what did you do today? Most people, I mean, whether you did it or not, most people don't say like, oh, I scrolled through social media, then I kind of got a snack. Then I, I mean, you share aspects of your life that fit in to these pursuits. You share when you did something meaningful at work, you share something you learned, something you accomplished. So I agree that there are some pursuits culturally we've deemed Essential, necessary, and more valuable than other pursuits. Even if at the time it's maybe not something that gives you immediate happiness, it's things that maybe we know give us long term individual fulfillment. Like within mm-hmm. Epicurean liberalism, is there room for maybe I don't love the homework assigned to me in a class right now, but I'm going to love the payoff of getting a degree later? So I choose to do the homework now, even though there's no instant gratification and I don't want to because I'm pursuing something that has a later payoff
1: date. I think that idea of delayed gratification, Holly would probably associate with virtue and that's not with simple Epicurean liberalism.
0: So the virtue is in understanding the long-term value of like a short-term project you're not interested in. Versus in a society that's truly, like, entrenched in Epicurean liberalism, you'd have a lot less long-term pursuits.
2: Or understanding of how things will affect you in the long term.
0: Kind of like no foresight or no, like, long-run view. If that's how he sees our society, he likely sees our society of having no long-range planning.
1: To fully don my Aristotelian toga, I think the golden mean would probably be somewhere between consuming everything now in a sort of hedonistic inability to postpone pleasure and always saving for the future such that you never actually consume or have any enjoyment before you die um, in some sort of planning for the future, but also enjoying life now. That'd probably be the, the virtuous golden mean. Well, and and even says says it down here, self-determination, as our earlier Republican tradition conceived it, involves freedom from arbitrary rules by outsiders in order that the individual might rule himself and take a part in ruling his community. Rather than a process of personal discovery, self-determination is an activity. It's the work of governing and ordering one's life so as to realize the fruits of one's abilities. In this sense, it's a demanding ethic requiring not just freedom from coercion for the individual, but personal discipline, planning, and hard work from the individual only by acquiring these characteristics can the individual begin to begin to exert control over his own life if you are ruled by your senses if you just eat whenever your body says you're i'm hungry i want this food i want this candy you just eat it you can't tell yourself no are you really free or are you just a slave to your desires slave to my body
0: could we argue that he views epicurean liberalism as a moral fallacy I mean that's really what he was saying earlier right a little bit like if this is what your society engages in you really lack virtue because it seems like he's saying the only virtue comes from being able to you know exert enough control over your surroundings that you have balance
2: like the idea that yeah you you can do whatever you want but like should you do it you know when looking at society or for other people or for your future self type of thing
1: and he calls that idea of doing whatever you want a blind alley that fails to help you live well in the universe it's not a means of liberation it's a delusion He seems to be advocating for some kind of Aristotelian virtue, a Roman concept of citizenship for the good of the polis or the community, I guess is what he's getting at. But he, he, he says that understanding liberty as self-determination uh, suggests different political agendas. He talks about how do we strengthen private associations and social structures to allow individuals to put their lives in order rather than focusing on equality like the left or maximizing growth in the economy like the right. How do we get to an economy where workers can support themselves with their own labor and improve their station in life.
0: I've seen a couple articles that suggest his ultimate vision is that of a theocracy is kind of what he's advocating for. I've seen a couple different sources suggest that that's really where his beliefs lie.
1: I I don't think he's aiming at a theocracy. I think that, I think that people at Vox just watch The Handmaid's Tale and then think that everyone on the right wants that. I really don't understand what he's getting, what he wants. I'm not actually in my notes here. Not sure exactly what he wants. Basically seems like be free but make good choices and be active in the community. And this is something that really irritates me about politics is when people talk only in abstractions which which is what he does this whole time. There's no concrete how does this look like in practice.
2: So much about politics and you know government if everybody was just a good person that yeah do what you want as long as it's morally correct we wouldn't need this stuff like but that's not the case.
0: First of all all I wrote in my conclusion was wants to be like TR. His conclusion also doesn't account for the fact not everyone may want the society he has in mind. If someone defines like if, if they go through what he wants Like if they discover, as he says in the last paragraph, the original American creed, the creed of yeoman citizen, the creed of self-determination. What if they find that they don't like it? Are they wrong for disagreeing with his idea of original America? Or is it okay? So I guess maybe he'd put me in the Epicurean liberalist camp, if that's what I said to him. But he seems to assume that by going through this, people will kind of be guided toward this ultimate philosophy. And I'm just not sure that
1: that's true. He see, says self-determination presses us to work for an economy through which the ideal of independence can be realized. That is an economy that allows every worker to support himself by his own labor and basically this idea of self-determination. And but I think, like you said, there are some people that don't want that. There are some people that are perfectly happy going someplace else for 40 hours a week and doing whatever they're told for 40 hours a week and they have security, they have their health insurance, they have some disposable income, and then they're going to come home and do what they want in the meantime. They, they don't want to be you know an entrepreneur. They don't want to have that independence. Like H.L. Mencken says, the average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. And it seems like Holly isn't accounting for those people who don't want to have self-determination. People that cannot form their own opinions about things. Oh, what's popular right now? What TV shows should I be walking? How should I feel about things? There's just tons of people that don't want to make their own decisions and make their own conclusions and make their own, even make their own values or principles.
2: Well, I think there's a lot of people that don't even realize yeah. that that's what they're doing. They're just following
0: along. It's like for a lot of people, what matters to them is what's right next door. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, like people who don't necessarily have their own, like they're perfectly happy doing whatever it is they do, making a comfortable living, getting off work and doing whatever they want. Like there are plenty of people, I think, and it's not like a fault. It's just the way it is that are not going to buy into his um, nostalgic American creed. Some people are just happy with the way things are. And they also view that large scale politics don't have a huge bearing on their day to day life. And that's okay. But people who think that way are going to have trouble embracing this kind of there's no plan for it. But finding this old American creed.
2: Not everybody wants to fight every day for some perfect ideal.
1: And it may be less a an attempt to set out his own program as I think more an attempt to lay out what's currently going on and why he has a problem with it than necessarily a comprehensive counter program.
0: I do think he makes a really good case for it right up until the end. I But I did think he did a really nice job laying the groundwork for how we got to where he sees we are today.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.